You know, every time I come up after that video, after that song, I feel like I should be wearing the Batman costume or something. <laughs> Isn't it just so intense? Like, if you're not pumped to get into God's Word now, like, I don't know what's going to change your heart. Hopefully that song does. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's um, so good to be here. We're going to be jumping in uh, to John 7, continuing our series uh, through the life of Jesus called The Way, The Truth, and The Life. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. Make your way to John 7. We're going to start in the last verse verse 53. And as you're making your way uh, there, I'll give you a heads up as to what we're going to be talking about uh, today. We are going to be talking about uh, roadblocks. Roadblocks. That's the title of today's message. Roadblocks, uh, a universally hated thing. That's the secret subtitle. You can just write that in there. A universally hated thing. Road, roadblocks are frustrating. Roadblocks are at times um, infuriating. I remember one time, uh, Carrie and I, we were living in North Carolina. This was about 10 years ago. And uh, my parents happened to be uh, in, in Tennessee. They live in Chicago. They happened to be in Tennessee driving down and uh, hanging out for some ministry thing. And we thought, well, hey, those two states are next to each other. We should hang out for the day. It was a terrible idea. The main highway that went over to Tennessee from where we lived, there was a roadblock. There was this landslide. And so back then we used our GPS. We punched it in and they weren't as refined as they are today. So it took us this back roads way through like the, through the Appalachian backwoods, like Real quick, what do you guys say, Appalachian or Appalachian? Appalachian. You're wrong. It's wrong. That's wrong. Okay? It's Appalachian. You can write me about that later, but it's Appalachian. I lived in that area. Okay? It really, truly is. All right? So we went back there, and I'm telling you, it was like crazy. It took us like three extra hours. We heard the banjos in the background. Like, if our car would have broken down, I don't think we would have been here today still. So anyway, it was awful. Roadblocks are terrible. That's the big idea. No, I'm just kidding. That's not it. Um, we're not going to talk about literal roadblocks. That would be a little strange. We are talking about metaphorical roadblocks today. Um, what's uh, Webster's Dictionary, the third definition uh, in that dictionary, it says something that blocks progress or prevents accomplishment of an objective. And what we're going to see in God's Word today in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, what we're going to see today is uh, that if we don't deal with the, the roadblocks in our lives, the spiritual roadblocks in our hearts, it is going to prevent us from experiencing all that God would have for us. It is going to prevent us from experiencing and receiving his goodness and his love. It's going to prevent us from accomplishing our objective, which is to glorify God. And so I think it's uh, important that we start off uh, our morning with this question at the forefront of our minds, and that's this. What roadblock keeps me from resting in God's love? What roadblock keeps me from resting in God's love? Because, listen, um, all of us here in this room today, whether we realize it or not, whether we want to admit to it or not, this is the thing our hearts are longing for and searching for. You know, like Pastor Cal's message last week when he talked about the different wells that we run to, we search for these things that would fill our hearts. And, and, and what our hearts are looking for, what our hearts are longing for in the things that we seek in this world, they're, they're longing for God's love to rest in this love. The problem, though, is for many of us, we have these roadblocks preventing us from resting in God's love. And so I think it's of the utmost importance. It is tremendously urgent for all of us today to recognize, to be able to answer this question, what roadblock keeps me from resting in God's love? And in, in God's word today, I think we're going to see two roadblocks that many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, struggle with in some way. And so if you haven't already, um, go ahead and turn to John 7, 53. Again, it's the last verse of John chapter 7. And maybe you've already made your way there and you're looking right now and what you see is a little weird. 
a little goofy. Like in my version of my Bible, my copy, there's like double brackets around it. And then there's like a message up top that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Does anyone else's copy have something similar to that in it? Anyone else raise your hand? Yeah, like what's going on here, right? It's almost like caution tape, like the scene of a crime. Like we shouldn't be touching this passage right now. Is this a roadblock for us right now as we dive into this portion of God's word? Well, let me just say with with the mountains of evidence that we have regarding God's word, we are almost 100% certain that this passage right here was not in the original manuscript. So what do we do? How do we move forward with this passage right now? Well, let's first consult people who are much smarter than any of us in this room. A renowned theologian and scholar named D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says this, He says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally a part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text, which is what the NIV does, or to relegate it to a footnote, which is what the RSV does. And so he sounds pretty confident there, don't you think? This other guy, Bruce Metzger, he was the leading uh, New Testament theologian up until his death in 2002. He says this about this passage. He says, the evidence for the non-Johannine, which is like a, fa- like a fancy way of saying like the non-John way, non-Johannine's origin of the story of the adulteress is overwhelming. And so Bruce sounds pretty confident there as well. And so the reasons for this are pretty straightforward. Of our original, or of our uh, copies of the manuscripts that we have before the fifth century AD, none of them include this particular passage. And in addition to that, the writings of the early church fathers in the second century, in the third century, in the fourth century, as they're writing about the Gospel of John and commenting on the Gospel of John, they jump from 752 to 812. And so I think the bigger overarching question that we face right now is can we, can we trust God's word at all? Like if this passage was inserted at a later date, can we trust God's word at all? And so this is a massive topic that we could spend days on, but let me just say this. Um, We can, with a very, very, very high degree of confidence, trust in and rely on the authenticity of God's word as it has been uh, transmitted throughout generations. And here's why. Uh, Many say that we sit on an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the documents that support the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament is like first place, gold medal, most reliable, ancient document. We have 30,000 partial or full copies of the New Testament manuscript. Second place is Homer's Iliad, which has 653. That's quite a big difference, don't you think? And Homer's Iliad was uh, written in around 800 BC, and the oldest document that we have is four centuries after that in 400 BC, whereas for our New Testament uh, documents, uh, often, you know, people say New Testament written in the first century AD, within decades, within the first century, we have copies. And so, bottom line, God's word is very, very, very Reliable, And if you've never studied this topic, I would highly encourage you to do it because it will increase your faith. It'll strengthen your trust in God's word, the, God, the, the copy of God's word that we have uh, today. Uh, but the, the, another big question still remains. This question of, okay, if God's word is reliable and we can trust God's word, 
And we also have this mountain of evidence that would also say that this particular passage isn't in John's original gospel. Then why study it? Then why look at it? Then why learn from this passage? Why not move on to something else that we are sure was actually in the original manuscript? Well, let's consult those two smarter guys that we consulted earlier. D.A. Carson, he says this about that same passage. He says, there is little reason for doubting that the event here actually occurred. And Bruce Metzger, he says that the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And so we can study this passage. We can learn from this passage. We can be shaped by this passage because the truths that we find in this passage are consistent with the truths that we see throughout the Gospels. Life-changing, eternal truths about who Jesus is and about what he's done and about what he says that will change our lives. And so before we jump into this passage now, let's just take a moment and let's pray. Father God, we, we just humble ourselves before you as we're about to get into your word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit uh, right now would, would, would move and soften our hearts. Would we be receptive to what you would have for us today? And would we not just be hearers of your word, but would we be, would we be doers as well? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so John 7, 53, let's get in. Uh, They went each to his own house, uh, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And so here we have the setting of our story right now, and Jesus is often where we find Jesus. He is in sort of the religious gathering place of a community. Oftentimes, he's at the synagogues, which were smaller sort of religious locations throughout Galilee. But here we find him at the temple, and and people have gathered around. They're interested in Jesus. They're curious about Jesus. They're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. They're attracted to his teaching because remember, Jesus teaches with this sort of authority that they were not used to. Also in this crowd, we see in verse three are the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse three. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said, this they said to test him. That's important. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they're there, they're, but, they're, but they're not there to learn from Jesus. They're not there for the morning Bible study. They're not there for the coffee and for the donuts and to sort of soak it in right now. They're, they're not. They're, they're there to test Jesus. They're there to trap Jesus. And they're there to trap Jesus because Jesus poses a threat to who they are, their power, their popularity, this culture and the traditions that they've shaped. So how are they going to trap Jesus though? Because here they've brought this woman who is caught in adultery. And if this is the case, it seems like an open and shut case. There, there isn't much nuance about it. You know, Deuteronomy 22, 22 says this, It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. In Leviticus 20.10, it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And so if these scribes and these Pharisees really caught this woman in the act of adultery, which is already suspicious to begin with, because where's the man, right? 
But if they really did, there's really no question about what happens next. According to the law, uh, according to what God's word says, she should be put to death. So what are they doing? How are they going to trap Jesus here? Well, here's what's going on. At this time, Israel was under Roman rule and Roman occupation. And what Rome had done was Rome had removed the um, authorities in Israel's ability uh, to issue capital punishment uh, in these sorts of matters. And so they were trapping Jesus. They were trying to put him in a no-win situation where if Jesus were to uh, disagree with the Pharisees, he would jeopardize his loyal Jewish following that was growing. Oh, you disagree with Moses? Now, listen, though, if he were to agree with the Pharisees, the Pharisees knew that Rome had removed their ability to issue capital punishment on things like this, and so they would be able to pin treason on Jesus Christ and bring that before the Romans. Do you get it? Do you see it? The the option, the no-win situation they were trying to put Jesus in, hey, Jesus, lose your followers, lose your credibility, or lose your life. You pick. Look at how he responds, though, to this high-pressure, no-win situation. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What was he doing? What was he writing? Some scholars and commentators and uh, theologians speculate about what he was writing on the ground there. Maybe he was just doodling, who knows? Uh, But the thing is, that's beside the point. You know, Jesus is in, is in this moment, and all of a sudden, he's in the temple court, and, and, and these scribes and Pharisees rush in on him with this woman. They throw the woman before him, and they try to put him in this high-pressure situation, and Jesus is unfazed. And he stops, and he gets low, and he starts to write. Like, how irritated do you think this made the scribes and Pharisees? Like, how frustrated. Like, they are ready for a fight, and Jesus is just like, hold on one second, and he just Look what they do in verse 7. It says, And as they continued to ask him, as they continued, they won't stop. They're pressuring him. The the Greek uh, verb here can also be translated, they persisted. And it's in the active tense. And so they're like, Jesus, Jesus. Like if you're a parent of a small kid, it's like, Mom, 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 Dad, Dad. Like they wouldn't stop. They were like pecking chickens, you know? Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? Should we put her to death? And you, and you wonder, like, were they so eager that they already had the rocks in their hands to stone this woman? And Jesus is just writing, and look at how he responds then in the middle of verse 7. And he stood up, he stood up, and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. How do you think Jesus said this? Like, do you think as Jesus stood up, they like got really quiet and they're like, oh, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. He's going to say something. Or do you think they were still yelling and, and clamoring? Did Jesus have to yell this over them? We don't know what he said, but, but, but in Jesus' life and in his ministry, um, he just has these amazing mic drop moments where he says what like you wouldn't expect him to say. And he just, and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He drops that line, and then look what he does. Verse 8, he goes back to his artwork. I don't, you know, and then once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And look at their response, verse 9. But when they heard it, 
they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. You know, we'll get to the rest of the story in just a moment, but I told you that we were going to look at roadblocks that prevent us from resting in God's love. And I, and I want to talk about this first roadblock that we see in the heart of the Pharisees and in the heart of the scribes. And this first roadblock is the roadblock of judgment. It's the roadblock of judgment. It's a roadblock that prevents some of us from resting in the life-transforming presence and power of God's love. This roadblock was the roadblock that prevented the scribes. It was the roadblock that prevented the the Pharisees. They had allowed judgment to um, to become the thing that prevented them from really, truly experiencing uh, God's love. Now, a quick word on, on Pharisees. You know, if you've been coming to church for any amount of time, if you grew up in the church, um, you oftentimes probably read the Gospels and you saw Pharisees and like instantly you're just like, I know, these are the bad guys. And so you have this kind of one-dimensional view of who Pharisees are. Like anytime you see the word Pharisee in the Gospels, you're like all of a sudden this dark, ominous music like plays in the background, like dun. And it's like the bad guys, the the black hat uh, bad guy who comes in on the scene and you're like, You know, I instantly know I don't like this guy. I disagree with this guy. But I want to paint like a slightly more empathetic picture of the Pharisees here and add some dimension to who these guys were because I think for many of us, we don't even know like what was a Pharisee. We just know it as a guy that Jesus didn't like or they didn't like Jesus. Well, Pharisees were leaders in their community. They were like the pillars of their community throughout Israel during the life of Jesus. Uh, they, they knew God's word really well. Uh, they ran the synagogues, which were oftentimes uh, uh, really important centers for people to settle disputes between one another. And, and they would distribute goods to those who needed them. Like in many ways, these guys were very important, very essential uh, leaders in their community. And these guys weren't like temple priests. You read about temple priests throughout the Old Testament. These guys weren't those guys. They were from amongst the lay people, and they were trained in God's word to be leaders in the community. Um, And they all weren't the same. Like, we can't have this monolithic picture of what a Pharisee was. You know, in one rabbinic tradition, they talk about Pharisees who were born Pharisees. And and what they mean by that is the sense that they, they were really noble and generous and sacrificial and caring people for their communities. Now, there's a lot of writings about Pharisees who were bad and, and greedy and hungry for power and manipulative. But there were many different kinds. I mean, we've even got Nicodemus as an example of a Pharisee that was curious and open to who Jesus was. But, but above all of that, they loved the Torah. They loved the Hebrew scriptures. And, and, and in their heart, what they really, really wanted was they wanted to take the purity codes and the holiness codes and the stuff that happened in the temple and the worship that happened in the temple, and they wanted to take that stuff and they wanted it to permeate all of life. They wanted all of life to be lived in such a way where God was honored and God was glorified and, and, and God was made much of. And doesn't that sound good? Doesn't it? Doesn't it sound noble? Like, can we be honest for a second? Who does this remind you of a little bit? Doesn't this remind you of us a little bit? Like maybe you've been to women's conference at some point or the vertical men rally or even like a weekend a powerful weekend service, or maybe you're a student and you've been to camp before and you experience God in such a powerful way. You know what I'm talking about? Where you experience God in such a powerful way where you want to take that with you and you're like, I want all of my life to feel like this. You know? That's kind of what this was like. 
But here's the problem. Something clearly went sideways on the Pharisees. Like they definitely are antagonists to who Jesus was and his ministry. So what went wrong? What was Jesus' problem with these Pharisees? Jesus' biggest problem with them wasn't that they cared about the Torah. It wasn't that they wanted to live these really holy lives where God was glorified in every facet of what they did. Jesus' biggest problem with them was they placed the emphasis on the wrong thing. Their priorities were out of whack. For instance, in Matthew 15, there's this story about the Pharisees and what they would do was they took what was owed to their parents to honor them and to care for their parents. And they created this tradition so that they would take that and and instead of giving that to their parents, they would give that to the Lord as if that was somehow more noble and more honorable. But, but, But when they did that, what happened was they prevented themselves from obeying one of the most oldest and central commandments, which was to honor one's mother and father. Do you see how their priorities were out of whack? They cared more about their own traditions. They cared more about their own culture. And they cared more about following that than bigger things like love and mercy and justice and faithfulness. This is what Jesus calls them out for in Matthew 23, 23. He says this, he says, woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so he's not saying those other things aren't important, but he's clearly saying these things are more important. These things are weightier. These things are more central to the heart of God. And you're missing the main thing. The bottom line is that the intention of the Pharisees was really, really good. They wanted to honor God but they were doing some of the right things for the wrong reasons and missing some of the main things. And they had created this very narrow way of living where you had to do these certain things. And as long as you checked these certain things off the box, you were holy, you were acceptable, you were loved by God if you did these things. And if you didn't, you were unclean and you were unacceptable. You were unworthy. I think it goes without saying that this is a very unhealthy, prideful way to live. And it distorts everything. This isn't the way of the Lord. It distorts everything to the point where, I mean, we see here in this story that they begin to dehumanize other people. This woman who, even though she was a sinner, is still created in the image of God and did not deserve to be treated like this but they used her as a prop. They used her to trap Jesus. And and listen, my greatest fear for myself and my own heart, and and for all of us, truly, is this, that, 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 that in all of our good intentions here at this church at Harvest, that this is who we would become. That we would somehow allow the, the, the good things that we do here And we would allow these good things to define us in such a way where where we are the good ones, where we are the good people, where we are clean and they, whoever they are, are unclean. We would create these dividing lines. And even worse, that we would add things that aren't even in God's word and we would freight that on top of all of those things and say a good Christian, a good believer does this. Creating more disunity creating more animosity, 
creating more friction, not only in our body, but in our community. You see, if we do that, then we have allowed this roadblock of judgment in our lives to prevent us from experiencing, from resting in God's love. Again, we can do all the right things, but do them for the wrong reasons. So just as a warning to us, here are a few things. Judgment might be a roadblock in my life if these things are true about me. Judgment might be my roadblock if I value appearances over integrity. Judgment might be my roadblock if I value appearances over integrity. Because judgmental hearts care more about how they're perceived by others than how they're viewed by God. You know, Jesus calls the Pharisees out and he calls them whitewashed tombs. You, you look beautiful on the outside. You've got it together on the outside, but on the inside, there's death and decay and bones and rotting flesh. Is this us? Do we value appearances more than integrity? Are we model Christians on the outside? We come to church on the weekend. We go to small group and we share a little bit. We're a little transparent, but not entirely transparent, right? Because we don't want everyone to know all of our skeletons in our closet. And we have everything together on the outside. The unacceptable sins, we've sort of gotten those and kept those at bay. And if they do kind of uh, seep up through the cracks, we paper mache over it and try to keep that hidden. Because we value appearances more than we value integrity. We, we value what people think of us and see of us rather than what God sees of us. Judgment might be my roadblock. Another thing is I embrace an us versus them attitude. Judgmental hearts embrace an us versus them attitude. They create very clear dividing lines between who is in and who is out. And oftentimes what you see in, in these kinds of groups, uh, tribes, communities, is people all start to think the same and they all start to act the same. And in the most dramatic instances, they all start to look the same. And then per the content of the conversation, oftentimes it's more about what we're against than what we're actually for. And again, when it comes to talking about what we're actually for, there's again a shocking amount of similarity on, on things that according to Jesus would be minor things and not major things. Similarities on issues regarding politics and social stuff and family matters and, and, and matters of medical issues. The, the problem isn't having biblical convictions about those things. The problem is turning minor things into major things and creating dividing lines within the church that would create an us versus them mentality. Judgment might be my roadblock if this is true of me. Another one is this. A judgment might be my roadblock if I read the Bible to substantiate what I believe and not to be shaped by it. I read the Bible to support my beliefs and not to be shaped by it. Now listen, our, our, God's word should support what we believe. But here's what I mean by this. Um, no one knows their Bible as good as a God-fearing, church-going, judgmental heart. True, truly. They watch a lot of uh, Right Now Media and listen to a lot of podcasts and go to a lot of Bible studies, all really good things. But here's the problem. Um, when, when God's word is opened up before them, uh, they've already decided what it's going to say. And listen, if we're not perpetually growing as we're walking with the Lord, as we open his word and being humbled and having to repent of wrong views of who God is over time throughout our lives on this side of eternity, then we have judgmental hearts. 
Judgment might be my roadblock if I open God's word and already know what's it, what it's going to say, and, and I'm, I'm just simply using it to substantiate what I believe instead of being shaped by it. And one more thing. Maybe you've been getting irritated about some of these things. Well, this last one's not going to be good for you. Judgment might be my roadblock if I get angry when I'm called out. If I get angry when I'm called out. That's because judgmental hearts care more about other people's problems and other people's sin, and not in a way where they want to help them, but, but, but in a way where they want the spotlight on them. I mean, isn't that what the Pharisees have done here? The spotlight is on this woman. They care more about other people's problems, other people's sin. And they have this way of ranking sins in such a way where their sins are usually pretty low on the list and other people's are pretty high. So maybe this is you today. Maybe this is your roadblock. Um, And and if it is, um, here's why this is such a massive problem. It's such a massive problem because judgmental hearts can't rest in God's love because they don't believe they need it. That's the problem here. Judgmental hearts can't rest in God's love because you, you don't believe you need it. And you, might, you might say you need it. You might think you need it, but you don't live in such a way where you really, really humbly depend on God's love in your life. And at the root of this attitude is pride. It's a self-reliant pride that what I do is enough, that what I do earns God's favor, what I do earns God's love. And you might practically say, no, I disagree with that, but the way you really live shows no humble dependence on the love of God. It's all on you. Here's how I want to illustrate this. I need a volunteer real quick. Can I get a volunteer? Jonathan, I'm going to pick you. Can I, can I get you up here? I'm not going to ask you for a hundred bucks, okay? You just come on up on the stage. I'm going on a trip here in about a week, and so I brought my bags, and I thought I could use them uh, for this illustration here. Okay. Take this corner right here. I did it last night. I should be able to do it today. Very good. All right. So, Jonathan, in this illustration, you, um, you're a follower of Jesus. Is that okay? Okay, great. Um, and you... You want to honor God, and you want to live for him, and you want to live for his glory. And so you start to do things because he's, he's transformed your life, and, and, and you want to do things to honor him. And so that might be, you know, there you go. It's a little heavy, right? There's some stuff in it. You know, I'm getting ready for my trip. Um, and you start doing things for God, and you want to honor him and glorify him with your life. And you're doing these things, but, but listen, over time, something happens, Something changes subtly where instead of doing these things out of this heart of gratitude where God has changed you and transformed you, you start to do these things to earn his love. And then subtly, over time, you begin to change. And and not in a a good way. I'll put some right over your neck like that. There you go. (laughs) Feeling a little heavy now, right? It starts to change you. And, And the problem is you're doing these things to earn God's love. I got two more for you. Okay, here you go. It's a long trip. Um, here's the problem. If, if I were to say, hey, Jonathan, like, let's hug it out real quick. Like, we're not going to do that because of Rona, obviously, okay? Right? Social distancing. But, but even if we were to hug, like, you would be so obstructed by all of these things 
around you and on you, weighed by this baggage. And, and here's, the, here's the bigger problem here. Not only uh, would he be obstructed by all of these things that he's carrying, additionally, um, what happens when we start to do this from a place where we think we're going to earn God's love, we're like, I don't need the hug in the first place. I've got all of these things. I've done all of these things. Aren't I good enough? I don't need it. And we start to believe that lie. See, this is the problem with judgmental hearts. They can't rest in God's love because they don't believe they need it because they've got all of this other stuff. You get it? All right, let's thank Jonathan for carrying all my stuff. You can just go ahead and put it down there on the ground, wherever, yeah. It's gonna take him a while to take that stuff off there, but judgment is our first roadblock that we see. A roadblock that prevents us from really, truly resting in God's love and from even understanding or realizing or believing that we actually need it. Let's keep reading. Look at verse um, 9 again. And so the Pharisees and scribes have walked away, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. In verse 10, Jesus stood up to her and said to her, listen, listen to what he says to her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. From now on, sin no more. Here's the second roadblock that we see that might prevent us from resting in God's love. It's this, it's condemnation. Condemnation. And I don't mean condemnation like judgment, like you're feeling condemnation towards someone, but you're like the woman here where you feel condemnation. You feel the condemnation of other people or maybe just your own sin, your own, the enemy accusing you of, of what you've done, of where you've been. You know, here we have this woman who we've already established was so wrongfully treated and, you know, a lot of questions around, was she really caught in this sin? Where's the man? Many scholars and commentators would say that, like, regardless, this woman was probably uh, maybe a prostitute or maybe just a looser woman in the community with a bad reputation or something like that. Either way, just imagine how it felt to be this woman. Grabbed from wherever she was, hauled into the public arena in the temple, thrown onto the ground. Imagine the shame that she felt. The, the isolation, how dirty, how low, how condemned she felt in this moment. Maybe your heart doesn't struggle with judgment, but maybe your heart struggles with feeling condemned, feeling the weight of, of the shame of your sin. You can't not think about all the things you've done. They weigh so heavy on you. They're on your mind all the time. And if that's true, then maybe these lies are true about you as well. Condemnation might be your roadblock if you believe that, uh, I, I believe I'll never change. And you're like this woman and you're, you feel trapped. And you've got, you've got this sense that I, I, I want to change, but I just I, I don't feel like I can change. And you don't want to go back to that website. And you don't want to have another drink again. And you don't want to lash out in anger. And you don't want to overspend again and drive yourself further into debt. And you don't want to binge eat again for another night, whatever it might be for you. And you just keep going and keep going back to it and keep going back to it. And you just get yourself trapped in this cycle where you feel like I'm never going to change. And you feel condemned. 
And again, with that baggage there, you're putting on this baggage thing after thing where you just feel like, I'm never going to change. Condemnation might be your roadblock right now. And, 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 and you get stuck in this spot long enough where not only do you believe that you'll never change, but, but maybe it's the second one too. I think that my sin defines me. And people know what I've done. I'm a... I'm an adulterer, I'm an addict, I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm whatever that thing is. And we've gotten ourselves in this cycle where we're like, no, this is who I am. This is just part of my identity now. And not only will I never change, but, 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 but I am forever labeled this way. And again, we feel trapped and isolated and condemned. And after a while, we might believe this last lie. I feel like everyone is doing better than me. I feel like everyone is doing better than me. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat across from someone in a room struggling with sin uh, who believes they'll never be able to change and they believe they're so defined by their sin that wherever they walk into a room of people, they have this preconceived notion where it's like everyone's doing better than me. I am the worst. I am the most unclean. I am fill in the blank. And they feel like everyone is always doing better than them, better than them and they're the lone failure. They're, they're the one who just can't get it together. And there's no hope for change. There's no hope to have a new identity. No hope for victory. Maybe, maybe this is you today. You feel condemned like this woman thrown to the ground. No hope. No hope for change. You see, different than a judgmental heart, which doesn't believe that it actually needs God's love. A condemned heart can't rest in God's love because they don't believe they deserve it. A condemned heart uh, doesn't, uh, can't rest in God's love because, because you don't believe you deserve it. You, you believe you've done so many awful things that you're so unclean, that you're so unworthy, that God's love would never touch you. There's no way God could love me. I'm too far gone. I've done too much. I've hurt too many people. There's no way. And instead of hardening your heart toward God over time, what you do is you hide. You hide behind a fortress of, of these lies, these lies that we just talked about, that you believe you'll never change and that you're defined by your sin and that you're always the person who just never has it together in the room. You believe you're unacceptable, unworthy, undeserving. Here's the thing, though. Do you know what's at the root of this? And you have a lot more in common with the judgmental heart than I think you realize. Because at the root of a, of a heart that feels so condemned that there's no hope for change, at the root of this heart is also pride. Pride is at the root of both of these things. Pride is at the root of a judgmental heart and pride is at the root of a condemned heart because pride isn't thinking too highly of yourself, which a condemned heart rarely ever does. Pride is thinking of yourself too much. That's the problem. That's what pride ultimately is. Both the judgmental heart and the condemned heart struggle with pride because at its root, you are looking at yourself too much. Your eyes are in the wrong spot. You're looking at the wrong thing. And so what's the answer? What's the solution? Because both of these roadblocks, both deeply rooted in pride, either spot we find ourselves in this morning, 
whether it's a judgmental heart or a condemned heart, we can't remove these roadblocks on our own. Like we are trapped. We are trapped. So what's the solution? Well, the solution, the answer to both hearts, to both roadblocks, judgment and condemnation is found in the one who tells the woman that she is no longer condemned. The answer is found in Jesus. Always Jesus. Only Jesus can remove our roadblocks. Only Jesus can. A simple truth that we have to remind ourselves of every single day. Only Jesus can remove our roadblocks of judgment toward others, of condemnation that we feel. Look at the screen at Romans uh, 8 right now. Romans 8, verse 1. Such a powerful passage for us to remember this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, listen, condemned sin. He condemned sin once and for all in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the good news of the gospel that we need. Whether our hearts are trapped in judgment or our hearts are trapped in condemnation, Jesus is the answer to both. And some of us, what we need to hear today is that you can't earn God's love. And I know that you know that, but I don't know that you really know that. And you need it. You, you need God's love. Stop hardening your hearts to him and, and today just humbly receive it. Repent of all the things you've done that you think earned that love and, and rest in it. He's done it for you. If we refuse to do that today and we continue to think we've got it under control, we'll continue to cultivate a heart of judgment that will harden our hearts so that we will be like those Pharisees, ready and eager to pick up rocks and throw them at other people so we do feel better about ourselves. But now listen, some of us, we need to hear this though. Um, you can't disqualify yourself from God's love. You can't disqualify yourself from God's love. And if you think that you can, if you think you've done something so atrocious, something so bad that God could never love you, then you're going to continue to cultivate that condemned heart that is going to hide from God. And you're going to plunge yourself further and further and further into that isolated darkness where there's more pain more sadness. And, and listen, Jesus is here today and he's saying, just come to me. Lay those burdens down. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. And he's asking you to lay it down. Repent of those sins because what does he say to the woman? Where'd they go? Are they here to condemn you anymore? I don't condemn you either because we see in this passage that for those who are in Christ Jesus and who's in Christ Jesus? Who's in Christ Jesus? Those who repent of those lies. Those who repent uh, from the lie of, of uh, believing that I don't need God's love. Those who repent of the lie of, of believing that I'm not deserving of God's love and, and turn to Jesus Christ once and for all 
placing their faith in him, believing that he lived the life that you couldn't live. You might be trying so hard to live this perfect life to earn God's love, or you might feel like, I just can't get it together. Jesus lived that life for you, and then he died the death we deserved. And like, like Paul wrote in Romans 8, that sin, our sin of pride, was placed in Jesus, and that sin was condemned, so that those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There's freedom. There's a new identity. You are no longer defined by what you do or don't do. You are defined by Jesus Christ. You are now a son of the Most High King, a daughter of the Most High King. Run to that and rest in that. This is what Jesus is calling us to today. You see, roadblocks are the worst. Whether we're driving and trying to get somewhere or, or more importantly, these roadblocks that prevent us from resting where our hearts were designed to rest in the loving embrace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so whatever it might be, judgment, condemnation, would we lay those things down, repent of those things? No shame here today, no judgment here today, only joy as we pursue after Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you that you do not come in a spirit of judgment or a spirit of condemnation. Lord, I do pray even right now that, that for those of us wrestling with sin, that we would rightly feel the conviction and guilt over our sin. We thank you for your spirit, that, 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 that you do convict us of sin. And whether that's judgment or whether that's just a, a cycle of sin we have been trapped in for, for as long as we can remember, would we by faith believe today in the promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not only that, your spirit will lead us out of that darkness and, and give us the strength and empower us to be obedient. The, the same spirit uh, that, that, that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in us now, God. And would we believe by faith that, that, that we can change by your strength, by your power? But first comes the humble acknowledgement that we can't do it on our own. So again, Jesus, we thank you that you have done it for us. Would we rest in that today? And would we be able to move forward from this place, like the woman was able to move forward from that temple court, new, changed, empowered by your spirit, to live for you and for your glory? We pray this in your name, Jesus.